So today's podcast is on acute exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, AECOPD. Our four learning objectives are one, to describe the pathogenesis of AECOPD, two, to distinguish bacterial AECOPD from non-bacterial AECOPD, and to distinguish both of these from community-acquired pneumonia, three, to rationalize the antimicrobial therapy selection for treatment of bacterial AECOPD, and four, to apply knowledge of AECOPD to manage a patient presenting with new-onset respiratory symptoms in the setting of COPD. COPD is a chronic progressive inflammatory lung disease, and these patients will have exacerbations as part of their natural disease course. An acute exacerbation of COPD is any respiratory deterioration in a patient with pre-existing COPD that requires a change in medications or intervention, like changes to the patient's puffers or a course of systemic steroids. But there are two distinct flavors of COPD exacerbation, bacterial exacerbation and non-bacterial exacerbation. Bacterial exacerbations are thought to be triggered by either bacterial overgrowth, because many of these COPD patients are colonized with various microbes in their airways, or colonization with a new microbe with which they had not been previously colonized. Non-bacterial exacerbations, on the other hand, are thought to be from viral, environmental, or other triggers. Right, and really, we don't fully understand the role that microbes play in exacerbations, and it's difficult to draw a clear-cut line between bacterial or non-bacterial exacerbation. Recent literature has shown that the majority of COPD exacerbations are attributable to viruses. But in practice, the way we identify patients with bacterial exacerbations is with three cardinal symptoms, because the literature has shown that patients with these symptoms obtain the most benefit from antibiotics. The three cardinal symptoms are increased dyspnea, increased sputum production, and increased sputum purulence. And that last one is most important. To meet criteria as a bacterial exacerbation, patients must have increased sputum purulence, the key cardinal symptom, and one of the two other cardinal symptoms. To be honest, really, the strongest data supporting benefit for antibiotics in acute exacerbation of COPD is in patients with either all three of the cardinal symptoms or respiratory failure. We do have some new biomarkers like procalcitonin that can help us identify which patients may benefit from antibiotics as well, but we don't use procalcitonin here in Edmonton, so we won't touch on that today. Let's quickly discuss the difference between community-acquired pneumonia and bacterial AECOPD, both of which may present with increased sputum purulence and volume along with worsening respiratory status. They're very different processes. Pneumonia is a parenchymal process. It usually starts with a microaspiration or a gross aspiration event, allowing a bacteria to overwhelm host defenses and reach a critical inoculum in the lungs. The host immune response and inflammatory mediator recruitment result in consolidation of the alveoli. This produces the observed respiratory symptoms and systemic features of infection. In contrast to this, AECOPD is an airway inflammatory process and not a parenchymal process. The respiratory symptoms in AECOPD result from either a disruption in the patient's normal colonizing flora, a viral infection, or environmental triggers, and this produces the localized inflammatory response in the airways. This explains why CAP, as a parenchymal process, will have a consolidation on chest x-ray. On the other hand, bacterial AECOPD is a localized airway inflammatory process, and the chest x-ray won't have consolidation. Okay, so quick quiz. Which of the following patients has a bacterial AECOPD? Choose all patients meeting criteria. A. A 54-year-old male who presents with increased sputum purulence, increased dyspnea, and increased sputum volume. B. A 48-year-old female who presents with increased dyspnea and increased sputum volume. C. 65-year-old male who presents with increased shortness of breath, weakness, fatigue, coughing clear white phlegm. So to answer this, we think of our cardinal features of a bacterial AECOPD. First and foremost, we need increased sputum purulence to identify a probable bacterial component to an exacerbation. So any of the above stems where the patient doesn't have increased sputum purulence can be ruled out. This rules out both B and C. Okay, so that leaves us with patient A. 
He does have increased speed and purulence, and he actually does have both of the other cardinal features. Accordingly, this is a patient who meets criteria as having a bacterial AECOPD. So now let's move into discussing management of AECOPD. All patients with AECOPD, regardless of whether it's bacterial or not, should be prescribed steroids and have their puffers optimized. We've already identified that patients with bacterial exacerbations, as defined by the cardinal symptoms, are the ones who may benefit from antibiotics. So the question for those patients becomes, which antibiotics? There is conflicting literature on how to select antibiotics in AECOPD, especially since the role of antibiotics is debated. Guidelines are not consistent with each other with respect to their antimicrobial recommendations. And unlike other infectious disease settings, cultures don't help with direct therapy here. For most COPD patients presenting with suspected bacterial exacerbation, sputum cultures are too difficult to interpret to guide antibiotic selection. COPD patients are often colonized with bacteria that are innocuous bystanders. Because of this, it's not generally recommended to obtain sputum cultures in COPD patients unless they're failing to improve on their empiric regimen, in which case we may consider it. In patients with respiratory failure, sputum cultures are often done, but again, cultures are very difficult to interpret in this setting, and often the patient will improve even if they're started on therapy that didn't cover the bacteria isolated from their sputum. So most of our AECOPD patients will be treated empirically if they meet criteria for a bacterial exacerbation, since unlike other settings, cultures don't really help us direct therapy. Now let's think back to our last podcast and think through which antibiotics might cover the most probable bacterial precipitants of exacerbation. Right, so which bacteria will do well in this environment? Well, that would be mostly our gram-positive pathogens and our gram-negative cocci, that is to say, our respiratory gram-negatives like Haemophilus and Moraxella. Once patients have progressed to very bad structural lung disease, they may be colonized by gram-negative bacilli, especially if they have bad bronchiectasis. But again, we don't really know the role that those colonizers are playing in patients with acute exacerbations. So for most patients with acute exacerbations of COPD, meeting criteria as bacterial, we treat with agents that cover the respiratory pathogens. These include antibiotics like azithromycin, doxycycline, amoxicillin, or amoxclav. And you'll notice that these are all oral therapies. Yes, that is something that is consistent between most of the guidelines. Unless the patient is in respiratory failure or unable to take oral medications, it is generally recommended to give oral antibiotics. Again, this is an airway inflammatory process, and we aren't really seeking to eradicate a pathogenic infection from the lung parenchyma the way we are with a pneumonia. We are just trying to reduce overgrowth or prevent colonization with a new pathogen, and by doing so, reduce inflammation. So for patients not in true respiratory failure, we really can rely mostly on oral therapy. And we treat for a duration of five days as per current guidelines, although it's possible that this may become even more shortened over the next few years. Yes, antibiotic selection and duration for AECOPD isn't really the difficult part. The difficult part is discerning which patients will benefit from antibiotics and resisting the temptation to give antibiotics to patients that don't meet criteria. COPD patients are a population of patients who do often have strong expectation to receive an antibiotic. So communicating to the patient that they aren't likely to obtain benefit from the antibiotic and will just be at increased risk of resistant pathogens and side effects if treated unnecessarily is really important. Okay, so let's apply this to a case. Mr. D is a 71-year-old male who presents with increased dyspnea and fatigue. He reports that this has worsened over the past three days and has been accompanied by some sputum production, which he describes as white but thicker than usual. On exam, he is mildly short of breath but can complete sentences. His JVP is 3 centimeters above the sternal angle. He does not have visible peripheral edema. He mentions his father has just passed away and he's been smoking a little bit more than usual because of this. He is hemodynamically stable but has an elevated respirate at 24 and is satting 88% on room air. His past medical history includes hypertension, 
coronary artery disease with one stent placed in 2018 after an NSTEMI, COPD with an FEV1 to FVC ratio of 0.34, type 2 diabetes with an HbA1c of 8%, and chronic lower back pain. In recent years, he has cut down his smoking to half a pack per day, but over the past few days has been up to two packs per day. But over the past few days, it's been up to two packs per day. Chest x-ray shows hyperinflation, consistent with known COPD, mild cardiomegaly, and no consolidation. For his lab work, his lights are normal, his tropes less than 50, BNP is 148, and D-dimer is 600. The EKG shows inverted T-waves, Q-waves consistent with an old MI, but overall the EKG is unchanged from previous in 2018. The VBG is pending. For the review of systems, it's significant only for purse-lip breathing, sternocleidomastoid use, and expiratory wheeze on auscultation. He also has signs of peripheral arterial disease, hypertrophied toenails and hair loss to lower shins, shiny scaly limbs, and is otherwise, for review of systems, unremarkable. So to summarize, essentially we have a patient who presents with respiratory symptoms in the context of a cardiac history as well as known COPD. He has a negative chest x-ray at this time. His physical exam is mostly significant for respiratory findings. So what's our differential diagnosis for this patient? Well, the two most likely organ systems to be involved in producing the clinical picture here are either the heart or the lungs. In particular, given his review of systems doesn't otherwise show any other acute new localizing symptoms beyond his respiratory symptom. Right. Let's look at our top three most likely diagnoses, which is a bit trickier when considering AECOPD because there are really two diagnoses within one. If we are suspecting a diagnosis of AECOPD, we have to further distinguish bacterial from non-bacterial exacerbation. But let's start more broadly for our differential diagnosis. And please see the handout attached to the podcast, which includes a clinical decision-making matrix for our differential diagnoses. So to start with, our patient does have a cardiac history with hypertension and a previous MI four years ago with stenting. He continues to smoke and has some signs of peripheral arterial disease on physical exam. So this could plausibly be a cardiac cause of his respiratory symptoms, including heart failure or a new MI. The negative troponin and the lack of acute new changes on his EKG would point away from MI, so heart failure seems higher up there than an ACS event. So let's put heart failure on our list of possible diagnoses for a patient like this. Okay, so now for pulmonary causes of symptoms. His known history of COPD and recent increase in smoking could produce an AECOPD. And like we mentioned, we have to break it down to bacterial versus non-bacterial AECOPD, as the latter will obtain no benefit from antibiotics. So differential two and three would be bacterial AECOPD and non-bacterial AECOPD. Okay, continuing with lung causes, in the setting of structural lung disease, we know that he would also have a higher risk for pneumonia compared to other patients. The acuity of onset of his symptoms and the productive cough could be consistent with this. So I would say this is our other most likely diagnosis. Yes, not to say that there aren't other plausible causes of symptoms. This could be a pulmonary embolism, which can similarly present acutely, although with a D-dimer of only 600, we won't explore this too much. Or with his smoking history predisposing him to malignancy, this could be cancer. But given the relatively rapid onset of acute new symptoms, malignancy would not be a probable explanation causing the current deterioration. And even less compelling, while autoimmune disorders may also manifest with pulmonary symptoms, he doesn't have features particularly concerning for this. He doesn't have any extrapulmonary autoimmune manifestations. So just like we wouldn't put cancer in our top three diagnoses, I would say we don't have any features suggesting that autoimmune pulmonary causes should be there either. So let's work through our top three diagnoses. So our first potential diagnosis is heart failure. Our patient is part of the at-risk population because he's elderly with a cardiac history. 
The time course fits. Acute heart failure exacerbations happen over days to weeks. We know that left-sided heart failure backs fluid up into the lungs, producing respiratory symptoms like increased shortness of breath, increased respiratory rate, and increased productive cough. Our patient has several concordant features with left-sided heart failure. But our patient also has several discordant features. He doesn't have a consolidation on chest x-ray to support fluid back up into his lungs as the cause of his respiratory symptoms. He also doesn't clinically have other signs of fluid overload and has a negative BNP, suggesting he isn't fluid overloaded. So overall, this isn't a convincing picture for acute heart failure. Okay, now, community-acquired pneumonia. Our patient is an elderly patient with structural lung disease, so he is in the at-risk population. The time course for CAP fits. CAP symptoms usually onset over a few days, and the respiratory symptoms include things like increased cough, increased shortness of breath, increased sputum production, increased sputum purulence, fever, and a positive chest x-ray. Our patient does have some of these features. He has an increased respirate, increased shortness of breath, and increased sputum production. He does, however, have relevant discordant features. He has a negative chest x-ray, no systemic features of infection, and his sputum is not purulent. So we probably aren't looking at a cap. So that leaves us with acute exacerbation of COPD. We know he's in the at-risk population because he has underlying COPD, so we know he can have an exacerbation. The time course of an exacerbation fits as well. Symptoms usually onset over several days. And the clinical presentation fits. He has worsening respiratory status and symptoms that are likely going to require a change in medication. So his clinical presentation is definitely concordant with an acute exacerbation of COPD. Right. So this is where we need to distinguish bacterial from non-bacterial exacerbation using our three cardinal symptoms. Our most important cardinal symptom is, as mentioned, increased sputum purulence, which our patient does not have. He has increased dyspnea and increased sputum volume, but he's capable of expectorating sputum and isn't more purulent. So this is a strong discordant feature that points away from bacterial exacerbation. Right, so what we're dealing with here is a non-bacterial exacerbation. We suspect this is either viral or, given the patient's history, precipitated by his increased smoking over the past few days. So we know this patient isn't likely to benefit from antibiotics. From an AMS standpoint, we don't want to be providing antibiotics to patients who will obtain no benefit and who are already at risk of colonization with more resistant organisms. So what we can do for this patient is give him a quick steroid course of five days or so, since in both bacterial and non-bacterial exacerbations, steroids are a backbone of treatment. They help address the underlying airway inflammation, which is a strong contributor to the clinical signs and symptoms. Okay, so what about if the exacerbation doesn't resolve despite steroid administration? If the patient continues to have non-purulent cough and ongoing respiratory symptoms despite treatment with steroids, at that point we would have to broaden our differential again, consider malignancy or other more insidious processes. Okay, well what about if he did have a bacterial exacerbation? Well, we've already talked about the fact that most of our patients don't need sputum cultures because they're so difficult to interpret in this setting. We've also established that most patients will do fine with oral therapy as long as they aren't in respiratory failure. So if our patient did have a bacterial exacerbation, we would treat him with one of our usual oral respiratory antibiotics. Okay, so that would be something like high dose amoxicillin, azithromycin, oral doxycycline, or oral amoxiclav? Yeah, really any of those would be reasonable. And sometimes if he's had previous exacerbations, his recent antibiotic exposure will guide us as well. If he'd been in rest failure, we would have given IV ceftriaxone, or we would have treated more aggressively. And then he would likely be getting IV methylprednisolone, not just oral prednisone from a steroid standpoint, but he's not in respiratory failure. So I'd probably give this gentleman oral doxycycline, along with steroids, and call it a day. And what if he failed to respond to antimicrobial therapy altogether? So if he had a bacterial exacerbation and failed to respond to antimicrobial therapy and steroids, at that point we would look at culturing sputum. It doesn't change the fact that whatever we isolate may just be an innocuous bystander and not explain the lack of symptom response. 
But if we have somebody who's failing to improve on empiric therapy, it makes sense to see what pathogens are around to try tailoring therapy to those microbes to see if it does produce an effect. Okay, so let's say the patient is on day three of therapy. The cultures done by Emerge or another service wind up coming back positive and it's growing a pathogen that isn't covered by the patient's empiric regimen. Well, at that point, we have the test of time to support our decision-making. If the patient's had three days of therapy and has been improving, we have no reason to broaden therapy because we know the limitations of cultures in this setting. So if the patient's improving without treating a pathogen that's now been isolated on culture, we really have no impetus to cover that microbe. So that brings us to the end of our podcast. Here are our podcast take-homes. One, patients with COPD experience exacerbations characterized by reduced respiratory function. The three cardinal symptoms of increased sputum purulence, increased sputum volume, and increased dyspnea help us to distinguish bacterial from non-bacterial exacerbations. Two, bacterial exacerbations are those with increased sputum purulence and at least one of the other two cardinal symptoms. These are the patients who may benefit from antibiotics. Three, Bacterial AECOPD is an airway inflammatory process, not a parenchymal process. Accordingly, chest x-ray should not have a consolidation. And finally, four. Appropriate antibiotics for bacterial exacerbation include amoxicillin, azithromycin, doxycycline, or amoxiclab for a five-day period. So this concludes our podcast on acute exacerbations of COPD. Thanks for listening. Our next podcast is on community-acquired pneumonia. 